Open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. It's about midway, a little past midway, perhaps, in your Bibles. We're going to continue in the conversation we've been having the last, last Sunday and this Sunday. And, of course, idiot that I am, I thought, oh, yeah, two Sundays, heaven and hell. Got it. <laughs> there is so much here. And there is tragically so little that is truly clear about hell and heaven. Last week was hell. I mean, we talked about hell last week. <laughs> Are you with me on that? It, it, was, it was the study was hell. I was listening this morning, actually, to um, Alistair Begg, and, uh, and he was talking, I mean, he was doing a sermon on, on hell, and so this was a, a week later, I thought, I wonder what, what Alistair Begg had to say about that, and he shared as an opening comment that he went to meet with a guy from his church there in uh, Parkside Chapel in Cleveland, and this guy lived in a trailer park just outside of Cleveland, and he went to visit him, and, and this guy was a little rough, and, and he told Alistair, he said, yeah, I, you know, uh, my friends and I have this, have this practice every morning. We, we try to see which one of us can be the first person to tell somebody to go to hell. It's amazing the things people say to pastors. You know, you sit there and you go, huh. And, and he said, yeah, in the winter, the first one to say it, we always buy him a cup of coffee. Oh, <laughs> you know, and I heard that, and it reminded me of a time years ago, we were back in the barn studying through Revelation, and we were talking about around the throne room how it's that emerald rainbow of, of an emerald uh, hue around the throne in Revelation chapter four, and trying to make some sense of the colors and, and what the colors might tell us about Jesus. And I remember after the study, Maureen Esker, Erica Maureen, who just moved uh, recently to South Carolina, but Maureen came up to me and she goes, I know what the green represents. Green means go, go to heaven. And I'm like, that's it, <laughs> right on. And how much better would it be in our lives if instead of rolling down our window and shouting go to hell to someone who's just cut you off, you say, go to heaven, go to heaven. That that would be what we call to people, that that would be our heart's desire for people. And the whole reason we spent last week talking about hell was not because it was God's intention for you, for me. In fact, remember that, we were very clear on that. Hell is for real, hell is forever, hell is not for you. It is not God's intention for anybody to end up there. But we're focusing on these two essential truths, heaven and hell. I wanted to get hell done, out of the way, understood at least to a degree. I think there's still far more we probably could have talked about, but we got the basic. I want you to know that according to an American Worldview Inventory 2020 survey, so this is very recent, 54% of Americans believe they will get to heaven. <laughs> yep, they're gonna get to heaven after they die. What's that based on? I'm a good person. Hold that thought. 2% believe they're going to hell. Isn't that just kind of how we think? Yeah, no, nah, it's all good. I just, I'll, I'll make sure I'm covered. I'll do enough. I'll do enough. You know what that means to me? 54% think they are going to get to heaven or are pretty confident of that. Whether the confidence is founded or not, I don't know, but we'll just accept that at face value. 2% believe that they are going to hell. They actually believe that's their destination. That's 56%. You know what that leaves us? 44% who have no idea. 44% who are like, no clue. 
No answer. You might say 44% with troubled hearts. I think it's much higher than that. I think there are far more people who, when they are confronted with even the concept of life after death or their own mortality, don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it, don't want to go there. It is troubling, it's disconcerting, it is unknown, it's vague, so there are no answers, so just leave me alone with this. Here's the problem. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 rightly tells us that God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. You know it. I know it. There is an eternity. There is something in the human condition, in the human heart, that accepts and knows whether we want to or not, there is an eternal. There is a beyond this life. There is more. We know this. We may try to shove it down. We may try to ignore it. We may try not to talk about it, but we know that there is eternity. It's right here. God, God hardwired that into your heart that you know but what's interesting to me is Ecclesiastes 3.11 continues, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. <laughs> That's marvelous. What that means is God said, Penelope, I'm gonna tag you with eternity. You know it, but I'm not gonna tell you anything more about it. So we're, we're left with this sense of forever, but going, okay, but, but then what? But, but Lord, then what? Which is exactly what he wants. You see, the point is, the only way to find out the work which, is, which God has done beginning to end is for him to tell us, for us to go to him and tell us he has. The wonder of the scriptures is the answers are here, folks. This is why we pour over the book. This is why we're always in the Bible, because the answers are here. You don't have to be part of the 44% who doesn't have a clue, whose heart is troubled. Again, I think it's far more because the truth of heaven and hell, the afterlife, life now, peace, hope, joy, love, all these things, it's all in the scriptures. It's all there. God said eternity in your heart and then he said, now I wanna have a conversation with you about what's going on and about where you can be and it draws us to him. Now, I remind you, we're talking this morning, we're talking in basics, basics. Ezekiel chapter one, verse one. Boy, I never read the verse, did I? Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. So heaven, heaven is and is not the focus this morning. It is and is not the focus. I, this, this has been a challenge for me because again, we're trying to go basic, trying to get foundational. There are things I didn't cover related to hell or that people might think of in terms of hell last week that I just, I kinda had to say, that's enough of a side issue, we're not gonna deal with that. I'll give you one example and that is the abyss. I didn't talk about the abyss. The abuso in Greek, Tartarus, is also another name for it, the pit. Bible talks about a pit of incarceration for certain incredibly wicked demons that are currently incarcerated in this pit. Revelation 9 talks about that pit being opened up during the tribulation, and it is not a pretty sight. But even the devil himself is gonna be thrown into that pit during the millennial kingdom. These are things we didn't talk about last week. Didn't have time to really touch it. And, and it's not hell, the pit, the abuso is not Gehenna, hell, it's not 
Hades, or Sheol, Hades and Sheol, remember the waiting place of the dead, as we talked about. And if you weren't here, go back and listen. We have the whole thing laid out related to what the Bible says about hell. But the pit, the devil is gonna be incarcerated there. Bible says for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20, verse one, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, the abuso, this pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Can you imagine a kingdom on this earth led by Jesus where Satan is put away. That's the promise of the kingdom. But we're not talking about the kingdom. We're talking about heaven and and hell. It says that after this time, after the thousand-year kingdom, he must be released for a short time. Wait, what? What? Hey, that's another study for another time. So we're not even dealing with that. And if you want to deal with that, go listen to the Revelation study, which I remind you is available on the podcast, Bridge Christian Podcast, The whole revelation, all the teachings are there. I know it's a little challenging to scroll. I also want to remind you that the uh, bridge, if if you want to get a flash drive with Genesis through Revelation, the whole thing, you can get that. And all you have to do is email um, bridgeteachings at gmail.com. And we're having those flash drives made up. And we already have like 40 or 45 of them that are available. If you've already emailed, don't worry, one will get to you. Um, If you haven't yet and you'd like one, you can do that. There are so many things here, obviously, that there are other points of reference and other teachings that you can go to. But hell is what we were talking about last week. Not the pit, not that incarceration, not the devil, not even the millennial kingdom. We're dealing with hell. We're not gonna deal with the millennial kingdom this week. We're dealing with heaven, heaven, trying to be specific. Matthew 25, 41 reminds us that hell is for real, Hell is forever, and hell is not for you. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. And I want to underscore that. The devil, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So after this incarceration, his ultimate end is hell. He's not the king of hell. He's not the prince of hell. He's not in charge in hell, but he's going to hell. That's where the devil is headed, and he knows this. It's where the beast and the false prophet are also, Revelation 20, verse 10, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that is unquestionably an eternal place. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 says, then after the great throne judgment, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That, my friends, is hell. That is Gehenna. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the deal. You gotta have your name in the book of life. Some of you know that. We're talking basics. You have to have your name inscribed on the pages of the book of life. If your name is there, hell is not for you. Well, how do I do that? How do I I get my name in the book? Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is unequivocal. That is Bible telling you how you're saved. It's very simple. You confess Jesus is Lord. You accept him as your Lord and Savior. And then very simply, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Salvation is yours. Your name's in the book. You don't have to fear hell. You don't have to be 
among the 2% who think they're going or the 44% who don't know where they're going. You can be not just in the 54%, you can be the absolutely assured of your salvation because Jesus is Lord and because you believe in his resurrection. Isn't salvation the better motivation for how we live? I mean, you can be motivated by hell. Some have been. Some have come to faith in God and given their lives to Jesus because they were so afraid of hell. And to that I say, amen. You know, whatever it takes. If it's fear of hell that gets someone saved, I'm okay with that because I also know that once saved, they're gonna start to find out who Jesus is. They're gonna start to recognize his grace and compassion and love and mercy. They will come into the joy of their salvation. But I still maintain the better motivation for giving a life to Jesus is salvation. Isn't that better? Shouldn't we be more inclined to desire heaven than to dread hell? I would much rather talk about heaven. I would much rather consider being heaven bound. What's ironic to me is that in a rebellious and fearful world, even the concept of salvation can be considered offensive. Have you noticed that? What do you mean? Well, you start to talk about someone getting saved and their response is, oh, like I need saving. Yeah, you do. Yes, I do. We all desperately need to be saved. And God has made it such that we can know we are. And I wanna drill that home this morning. But, but let's, let's think a little bit about heaven. We're gonna do some of what we did last week. We're gonna go back, we're gonna consider some Jewish thought based on the Hebrew scriptures. And then we're gonna make our way toward the New Testament. I'm gonna go ahead and break it to you right now. We're not gonna finish this morning. I'm gonna get to a certain point. I got literally in my study and looked at it and went, there's no way. There's, we're three hours on Sunday morning if I do all this. So I cut it in half. Those of you doing the math are going. I cut it at a certain point. You'll know where, and we're just gonna stop, and then I'm gonna finish it on Wednesday night. If there is a Wednesday night that you ought to try and plan to be here, it's this Wednesday night. Yeah, you said that last week, Rick, about the worship night. I know, but, but really, we're gonna get to, we won't even hardly scratch the New Testament on heaven this morning, but we're gonna lay a foundation and get there, so that's where we're going. Current Jewish belief on life and the afterlife breaks down into five specifics. Very simple. Um, modern Jews today, I'm talking believing Jews who accept Torah who accept the Hebrew scriptures, don't yet accept Jesus as Messiah, but they believe the rest, they believe the first part, this is what they think. Now this is based on Talmud and Mishnah and other Jewish literature. Please understand when I quote from the Talmud or the Mishnah, <clears throat> I'm not quoting scripture. I'm quoting commentaries on scripture, Jewish commentaries on scripture that are no more truth than the commentaries I have up in my office. If it's written by man about the Bible, I say, start with the Bible. Go to the Bible. This can be historically informational and archeologically informational, and even when I'm teaching, go to the Bible. Test and look at everything scripture has to say. Don't just say, well, Pastor Rick said, because I guarantee if you stand before God at heaven's gate and say, well, Pastor Rick said, God will say, I know Pastor Rick and he ain't gonna save anybody. <laughs> so test everything by the word of God. But, but here's, here's Jewish thinking. Again, it's so much of Jewish thinking today is based on Talmud rather than Torah. 
commentary rather than the Bible. They believe, number one, and, and, and all this stuff basically does ring true of biblical truth, interestingly. Some of it's a little off, but the current world. So five things, current world, the here and now. So they believe in the current world, that's good. Secondly, for those who die right now, they believe they go to Gan Eden. Not gone like G-O-N-E, he's gone, but G-A-N. It means garden, Gan Eden. So a Jewish person today, a believing Jewish person, if they die, it's believed they go to Gan Eden, which they see as the paradise side of Hades, of Sheol. Gan Eden in Sheol. That's for those who die right now. Number three, Yamot HaMoshiach, which means the days of Messiah. So they believe there's life here and now, there's Gan Eden for those who die here and now, and then there's the days of Messiah. But they say about those days, the promise is now, but it's not now. It's kind of like the kingdom for the church, right? The promise of the kingdom is here, but it's, it's not here. I, it is and it isn't. I mean, it, it's here in that we are citizens of the kingdom, but you don't have a kingdom until the king himself is there and the king is coming and will establish his kingdom. But again, Jewish perspective. They believe in the days of Messiah. These days are coming when there will be established a kingdom on the throne of David in Jerusalem. They believe that. Then they believe in the resurrection of the dead, which comes after the days of Messiah. I find that interesting because that does track with the book of Revelation. That the days of Messiah, the millennial kingdom, will happen on earth first. And then there is the resurrection of the dead to judgment. Okay? Resurrection of the dead. That's at the final stage of the Messianic era, and it parallels Revelation chapter 20. After that, after that, and this is really where our focus is, is Olam Hava. Olam Hava, I used that phrase last, last week, and it is the world to come. So Jewish people, believing Jewish people today, believe that there is going to be, after the days of Messiah, a resurrection from the dead. They believe there's going to be a judgment, and then Olam Hava, on into eternity, the days to come. Now, the thing about Olam Haba is that there's not a whole lot of definition for it. What does it look like? What does it mean? And that's how I grew up. I grew up believing there's heaven. What happens when you die? You go to heaven. And then what? I don't know. I guess I better learn to play a harp. You know, what, what, what happens when it's all over? Jesus comes and takes us to heaven. And then what? I don't know. I never knew. You know, and there's that vague, even in churches today, there's that vague sense of life now, hang in there, heaven's coming, what's heaven, huh? And we'll talk about what heaven literally is. But all these things in the Jewish thinking do find biblical parallels, both in the Hebrew scriptures and even in the New Testament, there's some spiritual truth here. Like Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, gone Eden, to cultivate it and to keep it. So they sense, they think that the Garden of Eden still exists, but now exists in Hades, and that's where you go when you die. There's another Hebrew word for garden that may sound more familiar to you than gan, and it is pardes, paradise. Pardes literally means a, an enclosed orchard. So that's the sense of the Garden of Eden, that it was kind of enclosed in a beautiful garden that the, that the man and his, and his wife, that the two of them kept together. This enclosed garden, pardes, the Greek is paradiso. As you all guessed, paradise. And that simply means a grand garden enclosure. 
So again, you've got this gone Eden, you have paradise, and for a long, long time, in fact, Jews of the first century believed that paradise was paradise Hades. They still do today. As we talked about last week, Paradise Hades is no longer necessary because now when someone dies by faith in Jesus, their spirit immediately goes home to be with the Lord. So Paradise Hades is not a thing. Remember that Jesus explained that in Luke chapter 16, talking about the paradise side where the uh, poor Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, and then you had the, the torment side where the rich man was, and he's calling across, give me some water, and there's a great chasm in between. Jesus talked about that in Luke 16. Remember the thief on the cross. I love that interaction because the thief said, "When you remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I'll do you one better. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Right now, we're going now. You don't have to wait for the kingdom. Paradise will be now. Marvelous. And then Revelation chapter two, verse seven, Jesus said to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradiso, the paradise of God. So there's a future paradise, that, that picture of the garden that Jesus offers us. He offers us this eternally beautiful, glorious garden experience, which we'll eventually see in our study of heaven. It is a garden, well-watered, fruit trees, I mean, marvelous. But the Garden of Eden is not it. And don't think that we're going back to the garden, that Jesus is trying to call us back to the garden. He's calling us ahead to the garden. The Garden of Eden on earth was only a shadowy representation of the true garden to come. So from there, contemporary Jewish thinking on heaven and the afterlife becomes largely extra-biblical, starts to take on a life of its own. Again, there are aspects of, of the truth in it, but there are some things that are very wonky. I'll show you. This is out of one of the commentaries, out of Mishnah, actually, Mishnah Sanhedrin, and it says, all Jews have a share in the world to come. That is Olang Haba, as it says in Isaiah chapter 60. And then they quote Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. Thy people are all righteous. They shall inherit. <laughs> See, even that. Thy people are all righteous. Really? Are we as a people all righteous? <laughs> I know myself too well. Your people are all righteous. Now, the Bible does say that, but it is speaking about a time when the people will have been made righteous, all Israel. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. But he's talking very clearly about all believing Israel. And he's talking about that time at the end of the age when a third will have come through the fires of tribulation and there will not be a single Jew alive at the time who does not believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So for a Jewish person or a Gentile to be saved, it's always through Jesus. But they, they say all Jews have a share in the world to come. That is that, that final eternity, Mishnah says all Jews are gonna make it there. How does that work? Well, then it goes on to say, these have no share in the world to come, which seems a bit contradictory. One who says resurrection from the dead is not from Torah, or that Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, is not from heaven, and one who denigrates Torah. So apparently not all Jews have a share. 
If you're Jewish and you denigrate Torah, apparently you don't have the share. But on the other hand, they say all Jews have a share in the world to come. How does that work? It breaks down even further. In the Talmud, Rosh Hashanah, it says, it has been taught, Bet Shammai says there will be three groups at the day of judgment. Bet Shammai just means house of Shammai. There were two main schools of rabbinical thought, the, the Shammai school and the Hillel school. So Bet Shammai means this is coming from Shammai. The Hillel, Bet Hillel comes from Hillel. So Bet Shammai says there will be three groups at the day of judgment. Note this, one of thoroughly righteous, one of thoroughly wicked, and one of intermediate. Huh. Thoroughly righteous, thoroughly wicked, intermediate. The thoroughly righteous will forthwith be inscribed definitively as entitled to everlasting life. Their names will be in the book of life, the thoroughly righteous. You know what? That's thoroughly true. That's absolutely true. To have your name in the Lamb's book of life, you must be thoroughly righteous. How do you become thoroughly righteous? Well, if you're Jewish, Talmud says it depends on the mitzvahs that you keep. Gotta keep your mitzvahs. My what? My mitzvahs? I only have my mitzvahs out in wintertime, you know? <laughs> you know what a bar mitzvah is, right? 13-year-old boy, he becomes a man. He's bar mitzvah. The girls, bat mitzvah. Do you know what bar mitzvah means? Son of commandments. He becomes a son of the commandments. To be a man in Judaism today is to become a son of commandments and the degree to which you are saved depends on the number of commandments you keep. It's works-based. And here's where it falls apart. It flies in the face of Torah. What do you mean? I mean saying that your righteousness depends on how many of the commands that you can keep contradicts Torah law. Even the keeping of the Mosaic law. You know why? Because there was only one thing that brought them atonement. What was it? Blood. You could keep all the commandments, all 613, but if you did not have blood sacrifice every morning and evening, remember that? Every morning and evening, every week on Shabbat, every month at the new moon, every time there was a feast or festival, especially annually at Yom Kippur, if you didn't have blood constantly, you were not covered. You can keep the commands. Well, actually, they couldn't because none of us can. The law is perfect. We are not but you could keep all the mitzvahs you want, but if you don't have a blood covering, you are not atoned for. Guess what Jewish people don't have today? Blood covering. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. There's no covering. It's standing naked before God going, well, I did my best, but your best isn't good enough. Talmud continues saying, so they say the thoroughly righteous, those who keep the mitzvahs. Well, then Talmud continues and says, the thoroughly wicked will forthwith be inscribed definitively as doomed to Gehinnom, hell, as it says. And that is true. You might say, well, but I know people who are not thoroughly righteous, but they're not thoroughly wicked. Listen, if, if you have a blemish, a sin, uncovered, you are thoroughly wicked. It's just the truth of it. It's one or the other. What's interesting is then it goes on and says, the intermediate will go down to hell, Gehinnom, and squeal and rise again. It's like a pig roast. Maybe that's inappropriate talking about Judaism, but 
The intermediate will go down to Gehenna, squeal, rise again, and then it misquotes Zechariah 13, saying, I will bring a third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and try them as gold is tried. My friends, that's talking about the tribulation. That's talking about Israel in tribulation, going through the fires of tribulation, and a third coming out the other side. That's all Israel that will be saved. And Zechariah is very clear about that, but Talmud quotes it wrongly. I don't say that arrogantly. I'm just saying based on Scripture. But then it says this. Note this. So, so the thoroughly righteous go to heaven because they've kept all the mitzvahs. The thoroughly wicked go to hell. The intermediate go to hell for a time, have their extra sin burned off, and then they can go to heaven. It's Jewish purgatory. And I want to underscore this again, and I'm not trying to be offensive to Catholics, but I'm telling you, gang, purgatory is not biblical because purgatory denies the blood of Christ. Purgatory says his blood is not enough. You got to go pay a little extra. Whatever Jesus' blood couldn't cover. Well, I'm sorry, but the Bible declares that his blood is perfect and absolute and enough to cover the sins of the entire world if people would just believe. So even in Judaism, there's this sense of, yeah, but I gotta pay. So the intermediate, I gotta go down and pay a bit in hell, and then I can rise up. But then it concludes with this, Bet Hillel, house of Hillel, however, says, he that abounds in grace inclines the scales toward grace. That's nice, but it's not far enough. It's saying that even though there, you know, there's the thoroughly righteous, thoroughly wicked, and then there's the intermediate in the middle, but God is a God of grace, and his inclination is to, oh, bend the rules just a bit so more people can get saved. You know what? Grace doesn't bend the rules. Grace is not God looking the other way. Grace is not God going, well, you're not quite as good as I'd like you to be, but okay, we'll let you in. I'm in a good mood. Grace is not me saying to one of my kids, I had you on restriction for a solid year, but you done three days, that's good enough. That's not grace. That's cheap grace. Grace, blood-bought by Jesus, who gave everything he had, is not an inclination. Grace is the authorization of salvation by expiation. Write that down. The authorization of salvation by expiation. That means this man is saved because of the authorization of God by the blood of Jesus that has now washed me clean, therefore I'm saved. That's the only reason I am saved. That's it. Not because God kind of inclined, maybe liked Rick a little bit more than he liked Joe. Not fair, we would say. Yeah, but his grace kind of inclined. No, grace doesn't incline. Grace is absolute in the blood of Jesus, period. You were either covered by the blood or you're not. That's it. It really is that simple, that black and white. It's Christ on the cross paying for my sins by his blood. He's the ultimate sacrifice, not just atonement, but as I said, expiation, a total cleansing. And it's through that that God authorizes this man to be saved. That's grace. Doesn't bend the rules. And I'm gonna say this one more time here. No amount of good works can incline the scales toward grace. You were either saved by the blood or you're not. More from the American Worldview Inventory 2020 survey. Check this out. 33% of Americans 
say that they are Christians who affirm this following statement. When you die, you will go to heaven only because you have confessed your sins and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, I'm not sure how you feel about that number. I'm not sure how I feel. But that, that indicates that there's a third of Americans who do believe that they are saved by grace. That means two-thirds don't. But it goes on. It says over half, that is 52% of Americans, accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. More than half of our country thinks the way you get to heaven is you work your way up. You pull your own bootstraps. You do the work. You show, you, your good outweighs your bad, and therefore you go to heaven. And that's not what the Bible teaches Study also found that huge proportions of people associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior still believe a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. You know, that hit me like a ton of bricks. That made me think, okay, so on any given Sunday at the Bridge Christian Fellowship, there are people sitting in here who still think they can do enough good to get themselves home. I don't know how to be any more clear than we've been. You can't work your way to heaven. You will never work your way to heaven. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We can't be perfect. And unless you can be absolutely 100% perfect, you're not going. That's the truth. Praise God for his grace in Jesus Christ. And it is so my heart. I don't want anybody ever walking out of here going, boy, I just gotta work a little harder this week. No, no, you need to trust Jesus. Throw your faith on him. So I don't have to do anything? No, I didn't say that. What I've said over and over is that I am saved by grace. My works are my thanksgiving. My works are the joy of my salvation. The things I do, the service I rendered, the righteousness I pursue, it's because I love him so much that I want to do whatever I can knowing I can never do enough. I just want to please my papa. I want to bring joy to my Jesus, so I'm going to do what the Bible says. I'm going to try to follow, and I know I'm going to fall on my face. Grace. But through all this, salvation is my motivation. Hmm. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Where are we on the big fat list? Romans 3, 20. Oh, good. We're fine. <laughs> By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. It tells you, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I blew it. Oh, I'm not good enough. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means it's been seen, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Is that clear? By grace you have been saved. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And the Bible even ends with this final statement. Note this, underscore it, Revelation twenty two twenty one. the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. That's the deal. So let's talk about heaven. <laughs> See, the truth is that there will be Thoroughly righteous people in heaven by faith in the grace of God who makes us righteous. And there will be the thoroughly wicked in hell. 
those who deny grace. And there is no such thing as an intermediate state. It is either heaven or bust. That's it. So what does the Older Testament actually say about heaven? And here's the easiest way to understand it. Turn in your Bibles all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. Oh my goodness, he's just now sitting down. I've been standing all morning. Genesis chapter one, I just, we're gonna get in the, in the next few minutes, and trust me on this, it'll be a few, but we're gonna get an overview, a broad overview of what the Hebrew scriptures have to say about heaven. We're not even gonna get to the New Testament until Wednesday night, but you need to check this out and understand this. Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Note this, my friends, heaven is not an eternal place. Heaven was created. Heaven was created in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. The word heaven is shamayim. Every time you see it, it's shamayim or a variation of the word shamayim throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Going on down in verse eight of Genesis chapter one, God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning one day. Some of your Bibles say the firmament. This is confusing for some because if you continue in verse nine, it says, let the waters below the heavens, the shamayim, be gathered into one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. And he called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and he said, yeah, that's good. But you know what he did also? He separated the two, that is, the waters, so that according to verse seven, there were waters above the expanse, which are also called heavens, and there's water below the expanse that was also called heaven. Water on earth, heavens, and water above the heavens. I won't go into it right now, but that's part of the source of the flood in Genesis 6 was the waters above the heavens that we call water canopy. And even science recognizes there had to be something that kept the entire planet tropical way back. The water canopy, the water's above the expanse, but the expanse is also another word for heavens. Let me continue on, and this will make sense. Verse 14, let there be uh, lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse again of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights and in verse 17, he placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light. Again, down in verse 20. It says, God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. So, so it may start to get a bit confusing. God created the heavens and the earth, but then he divided out, and now we've got a heaven that's between these waters. So what's going on here? Chapter two, verse one says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. So here's the easiest way to understand shamayim, the heavens, from a Hebrew perspective. Three heavens. First heaven, second heaven, third heaven. If you've heard this, stay with me because it's, it's interesting. Three heavens, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. But the thing is, the word shamayim is the only place I'm gonna get, I think, really technical. The word shamayim though it's a plural word, is also called a dual word in the Hebrew. Meaning what? Meaning when we think plural, we think three, four, five, several, you know, however many. We mean, anything more than one we think is plural. In the Jewish dual form, which shamayim is in the dual form of the word, it means two. But 
if you read through the scriptures, it's very clear that Jewish people believe there were three heavens. How does that work? Three heavens, but Shamaim, which means heavens, is in the dual form indicating two. Listen to me on this. Three heavens, here they are. First heaven. The first heaven is the visible atmosphere. It's what we see. It's, it's actually blue out here. It was gray earlier this morning. That's great. So blue, that's, that's the first heaven. What we look out the window and see right now. Second heaven, the second heaven is the expanse. What God divided out and called the firmament. There was at one time water above, it's not anymore, but the firmament, the expanse, we're talking about the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere. Beyond, so we have the atmosphere, first heavens, what we see right here. Then we have the stratosphere, mesosphere, uh, mesosphere and the thermosphere, and, that's, and then outer space beyond. That's the second heaven. The Jewish people would believe, and it makes sense, that the second heaven is everything beyond this atmosphere. First heaven, the air, air we breathe in our atmosphere. Second heaven, everything on out into the universe. And that's the first part of the dual word heavens. First and second heaven are both visible, tangible, physical created places. First and second heaven, that's one aspect of this dual word heavens. Are you with me? Just nod. Okay, all right. Then the second aspect of this dual word, heavens, is the third heaven, and that's where God resides. The third heaven. We'll see this on Wednesday night, but the Apostle Paul says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. And he was talking about where God is. So the third heaven is different. This is why it's dual. First and second heaven are visible and tangible. We can see the planets. We see the stars. We, we know there's substance out there, created substance. But beyond that, in a, in a spiritual place, is the third heaven. Don't think of spiritual as less real. In fact, I agree with C.S. Lewis that spiritual is more real than the physical. That's where we're headed. That's the real stuff. That's the good stuff. But the spiritual is different than all of the physical. It's unseen. It's beyond this dimension. The only way to see into heaven is if God opens the doors and says, take a look, which he did, as we'll see. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 is the first time we get a sense of this. An amazing moment when Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire. Remember that? They're up on the mountain, they look up, God opens up the doors so they can see into the third heaven. They see the pavement of sapphire and they see his feet, basically. They're looking up at God's feet. It says it's clear as the sky itself. But again, listen, this is so important to get and to understand. Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, first, second, and third are all created. A lot of people think that heaven where God is has just always existed because God has always existed. No, heaven where God is, heaven where God resides is a created place. Just as the first two heavens were created, so the third is created. And all three of the heavens that make up this word shamayim, heavens, all three belongs to God. It's all his. Genesis 14, 19 Melchizedek the king said to Abram, blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 10, 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, third heaven, and the earth and all that is in it, all belongs to God. Job 41, 11, God said, who has given to me that I should repay? 
Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then John chapter one, verse three, speaking of Jesus, it says all things, the word all in Greek is pantas, and it means all created things, everything you can see, everything made by God came into being through Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, I just point that out quickly to say, if it all belongs to God, then he can do whatever he wants with it. And guess what? That's you and me too. Creatures of the creator. He can do whatever he wants with us. We can cry unfair all we want, but does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Who do we think we are that we answer back to God? I mean, it's shocking sometimes how arrogant we can be in our skimpy little flesh that we would actually say, well, I don't like what you're doing with me, Lord. Hey, it's his right. He made you. You're the Lego. He's the maker. He has absolute right to do whatever he wants. What does he want to do? He wants to bring you to heaven. He wants you where he is. Abraham, David, Daniel, Jonah, Ezra, and Nehemiah, those guys in particular all use the name for God. They all call him God of heaven. God of heaven. Elohe Hashamayim. And they don't mean God of the first or the second heaven, although he is God over that as well, but they're talking about his residence currently in the third heaven. Deuteronomy 26, 15, Moses says, look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to your fathers. Turning your Bibles over to the book of Psalms. Psalm 11, and I'm gonna run through some psalms really fast, so just try to keep up. I'm gonna do this one in B-flat, watch me for the changes. <laughs> psalm 11, verse four. Now, just to get more of a sense, and this is, again, not comprehensive, giving you a sense of what do the Hebrew scriptures say about heaven. Psalm 11, verse four, and then we're just gonna run through about four or five psalms real quickly. I love this one. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne, note this, the Lord's throne, check this out, is in heaven. It's in heaven. So third heaven is, as I said, a created place where now God has his temple, has his throne. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Skip to Psalm 33, Psalm 33. Verse 13, Psalm 33, 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. We're not kidding anybody. God knows exactly what we're doing and he knows why we're doing it. He's aware. He is not so distant as you might think. Skip ahead to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, verse two. I love hearing you turn, and by the way, I reject the notion that, that people can't know the Bible. I just, I just, you know, and I've heard, the, I've heard the conversations. I've heard it among pastors. I've heard it in leadership seminars. You know, don't give them more than they can handle. Most people can only handle 20 minutes. I reject that. You guys know. <laughs> but, but I mean, 
seriously, come on, we can't understand this? God gave it to us to know it, to understand it. So Psalm 53, and I just say that because I heard you all turning and I love it. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them is turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the sin nature. That's the state. And God has seen that clearly from heaven. Let's skip over to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. So make that distinction. It's important. There are the created heavens, and then there's his throne, which he established there. So right now, currently, that's where his throne is. And his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 123, the last psalm, and then we'll move on forward from there. Psalm 123, and there are plenty of other references to heaven in the psalms that talk about other aspects, but this is important here. Psalm 123, Verse one, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So again, those last two Psalms I I gave you to, to point out, his throne is in heaven, his temple as it were, his habitation, that's the place of his residence to a degree, but it's so much bigger. The reason why I'm, I'm really trying to drive this point home that Heaven as we think of it, heaven where God resides is a created place even as the earth is a created place. The reason this is so important is God is bigger than it all. God is bigger than heaven. God is not limited to heaven. God is not the old man in the rocking chair looking down from a distant place in heaven, occasionally tossing a lightning bolt and occasionally hearing a prayer if his old hearing can get it. No, he's way bigger than that. In fact, you all know, where, where, is, where is the throne of the Holy Spirit right now? He's right here. He dwells. He has set up his throne in your heart. If you follow Jesus, it's one of the first things that happens. He takes up residency within you. He is not limited by a place we call heaven, that distant sphere, that distant location that it's so vague and cloudy in most people's minds. God's not limited to that. His throne is there. there. There is a sense of his grandeur, his glory in this place, and yet his spirit is residing in the hearts of people who believe. Listen to this, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon, on the day that he finished the temple, and they're inaugurating that first beautiful, glorious temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, He said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven, third heaven, cannot hold you, cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. And then later, he says in verse 30 of 1 Kings 8, listen to the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, toward the temple here in heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. So Solomon says both. He says on the one hand, heavens can't contain you, and then he says, but heaven's your dwelling place. So which is it? It's both. There is a location of God's holiness, of his throne, of the angelic host in the third heaven created by God where he has, you know, not limited, but he has a place 
But Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And if the psalm stopped there, we go, wow, distant, far away. But he continues and says, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, God is not limited to heaven. He's everywhere. And he especially is searching out the humble and the meek and the lowly of heart and the servant. Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. <clears throat> where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? There's no place that can contain him. Amos chapter 9, verse 6 says, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. So here's the point, putting it all together. There are three heavens, but there are only really two in the Shamayim. There's the first and second heaven of creation that we see. And then there's the third heaven, the place of the throne of God. And of that place, where God is not limited, we have been given some visions. And I'm not talking about those books on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm not talking about people who have had a near-death experience or an on-the-operating-table experience. That's a different conversation we can have if you'd like to, but I'm talking about the absolute, true, real heaven opened up where people were able to see right up in there. And, and of course, Moses was among the first, Moses and the elders of Israel. They saw the sapphire pavement. They got a sense of that. Then in 739 B.C., if you'd like to turn there, you can. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. 739 B.C., Isaiah the prophet has this profound vision. Isaiah is also toward the middle. <laughs> and he, he sees. It, it, it's, it's amazing. And by the way, it's the first time since Moses seeing the path, sapphire pavement. This is the first time now we actually have a glimpse into heaven, into the throne room, at least, of, of God's existence, that place. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that's how we know it's 739, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Note that, seraphim, plural, more than one. There are a number of them flying around, these holy beings. And by the way, the reason why we see the seraphim here and the cherubim in just a minute is because every time these angels, these glorious angelic hosts are mentioned, it is furthering our understanding of the holiness of God. This is a holy place. This is not the temple on earth, okay? Don't confuse that. When he looks up and he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, his robe filling the temple, this is not the temple on earth. This is the heavenly temple. Seraphim are there. One calls out to another, verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah is blown away. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me. He is expecting to just die right then and there. And I won't read the rest of that story. But here he sees the temple in heaven. 
lofty and exalted, for which the temple on earth and the tabernacle before it were just shadowy representations. Remember, God told Moses, I want you to make it according to the pattern. Make the tabernacle according to the pattern which I gave you. What's the pattern based on? God's temple, which currently is in the third heaven. God's temple, God's throne. Make it according to the pattern. So there's something physically represented in the tabernacle and in the two temples that followed that represents the temple in heaven. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 24 says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So vision of heaven, Isaiah, almost 150 years go by and another prophet comes along. Suddenly, Ezekiel, it's now 593 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel, which is just uh, a couple of books over, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and you get to Ezekiel, and this is where I wanted to get to this morning, and truly, we're, we're close, we're close. Hang with me a little longer. Ezekiel chapter one, verse one. Ezekiel, well, just listen to this. It came about in the 30th year. 30th year of what? This is Ezekiel's 30th birthday. The 30th year here is referring to the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. He's 30 years old. How do you know? He's a priest. What happened in the priest's 30th year? They started their priestly service. So this is the year Ezekiel would have begun his priestly service in the temple at the age of 30. On the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. He couldn't be a priest because now he is no, he's been taken out. He's in one of the waves of Jews taken out and into Babylon. And so he's up there, he's out there, he's by the river. It's in this depressing, horrible place. And all of a sudden, vision of heaven. And he begins to describe something that we have not even yet seen. Amazing. Heavens were open. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth of the in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord, verse three, came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him, which is Hebrew way of saying the Spirit of the Lord. Spirit of the Lord is now on Ezekiel as he gets this amazing vision. I looked. And behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. He's describing now cherubim, the cherubim, and Ezekiel 10 tells us that. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like a calf's hoof. They gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. And as for the form of their faces, each had, and I love it, <clears throat> the face of a man. And all four had the face of a lion on the right and a bull on the left and the face of an eagle there in the back. And I'm still waiting for this to be made for a Christmas tree topper. Verse 11, <laughs> such were their faces, their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and covering their bodies and they went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go. I like that. Without turning as they went. Oh, that, that would be our lives. Wherever the spirit goes, that's where I go. Without turning, I just follow the spirit. 
And they went straight forward. Verse 13, in the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. There's a lot of action here. The fire was bright. The lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro. These, these darting lights ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. And then we see, I looked at the living beings, and behold, there was a wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each one of the four of them. And then it talks about the appearance of the wheels, and down in verse 18, it talks about their rims. Apparently, they had really cool rims. And then in verse 20, wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction, and the wheels rose close beside them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. How does that work? I don't know. But what are we seeing here? Cherubim and chariots. So now there are heavenly chariots that Ezekiel is describing in this vision. And he sees the, the beings, but it gets better. Watch this, verse 22. Over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse. Same word from Genesis 1, the expanse. Okay, the separated area of heaven, the firmament. There was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out, note this, over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings stretched out, were stretched out straight, one toward the other, and each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. And I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, and the sound of a tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Wherever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now, check this out. What's happening? They're under the expanse, the cherubim. That is, they are between heaven and earth when Ezekiel sees this vision. They're flying below, under the expanse. In Revelation chapter four, John is gonna see the cherubim again. At that point, they're flying above the throne. But here in Ezekiel's vision, they're flying underneath. They're in the expanse. And what do we see? There came a voice, verse 25, from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli, which is sapphire. Moses sees the pavement of sapphire. That's what Ezekiel's seeing. He's seeing the same thing. But there are now these cherubim flying underneath. There's this beautiful sapphire. He looks up. He sees the throne as of sapphire itself. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. My friends, anytime God appears as a man, you're seeing Jesus Christ. Ezekiel saw Jesus on the throne in his glorious pre-incarnate state. I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance about him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. And he said to me, verse two, chapter two, son of man, Stand on your feet that I may speak with you. Jesus, you know what? I, I gotta say this real quickly. When you recognize the sheer wonder and glory of Jesus before he came to earth, it makes his coming to earth that, more, that much more astounding that he became flesh like us that he dwelt, um, he came from that to this? 
That's grace. That is, that is amazing grace. But in Ezekiel, we have this heavenly view of cherubim and chariots and then Christ enthroned. But where? Here's the point. This is why I wanted to get to it this morning. This is the main thing. So listen up. Why does Ezekiel get the vision here? This is the first time in the Bible, save Isaiah's vision, which is pretty limited. I saw the Lord, saw the throne, saw the and that was it. Ezekiel gets this astounding vision, and he's not a priest in Jerusalem, and he's not serving in the temple. He is by the river Chabar in Babylon. He is the river Chabar. Chabar means far off. He is in a far off place. He is exiled. Why does God wait to give such a heavenly vision to this man in exile? Psalm 137 says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I believe Ezekiel got this heavenly vision in exile to remind the exiles that their hope was not the earthly temple. And as a matter of fact, seven years later, the temple in Jerusalem would be raised to the ground would be burned down. Seven years later, seven years prior, God says, Ezekiel, I want to show you something. And he shows him the throne. He shows him God. And, and it's as though the exiles needed to know, and I believe they did, that God remained and his temple, his throne is and would ever be eternal and unshakable. Fellow exiles, I think you need to know the same thing. I do. His throne is unshakable. God is immutable. Don't despair when you feel exiled. When you feel like, what's going on? What's happening in this world? The heavens are open so Ezekiel could see this. And that's why this whole teaching, I keep coming back to, God is greater than heaven. Our hope is not in heaven. Our hope is in Jesus who is greater right now than the created heavens. Because you know what the Bible tells us? Now, I'll get into this Wednesday night. Heaven's gonna be destroyed. Oh, you mean the atmosphere and, and like the universe. No, I mean first, second, and third heaven are gonna flee away. There will be no, no place found for them. They will be completely destroyed, completely replaced, gone, absolutely gone. The heavens, as we know them now, first, second, and third are not eternal. God is. His throne is. He is, Hebrews tells us, giving us a kingdom which cannot be shaken. But the heavens will be shaken. In fact, the Bible even tells once again, I will shake the heavens. Jesus, my friends, Jesus, he is our confidence in freedom or in exile. That no matter what's happening in the world, remember, the next time Satan has you cowed or cornered, Remember this, Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. And by the way, the prophet Ezekiel, his name means God strengthens. Strength. Your hope is not in heaven. Well, wait a minute, though. What? But, but then where am I going? Okay, listen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus has a group full, a table full, if you will, of 12 troubled trainees. They were troubled. Like all the people in America who don't have a clue if they're going, where they're going, what they're going to. Don't even want to think about it. 12 troubled trainees. 
And he made a promise at that time better than the vision of Ezekiel. He said, and you know this, John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in heaven that you're gonna get there. No. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the point. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. I have a place prepared. My friends, listen, this is the deal. Fellow earthly exiles, our peace is the promise of the person of Jesus. Not just of the place prepared. I'm looking forward to that. In fact, you can think about this. He spent six days creating the heavens and the earth the first time, and Jesus has been working on heaven for 2,000 years. <laughs> the place prepared is gonna be awesome. But even the place prepared... It's temporary. The place prepared is not the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the one calling you to himself, calling me to himself. The place to which he will catch us up is where he is. That's the point. Where I am, there you may be also. And in verse four, he says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus got out Google and said, well, let me explain to he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's why I said earlier, this teaching this morning is about heaven and it's not about heaven. My hope is not heaven. My hope is Jesus Christ. My hope is the throne of God, which is eternal. My hope is the presence of the Lord, which never goes away. Is forever. And what's amazing is that by giving your life to Jesus now, you are in his presence now forever, even in exile, as he takes up residence in your heart for the time being, until he calls us up to be with him for the time being. But you know what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, 4.17? And so we shall always be with the Lord. He's the point. It's all about getting to where Jesus is is. Isaiah 65, 17 says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What does that mean? Come back Wednesday night and we will talk about that. Let's stand together. And someone might say, well, Rick, we didn't even get into what Jesus had to say about heaven Wednesday night. Yeah, but we didn't even really get into what the New Testament says about heaven. Okay, I'll give you one thing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And down in verse 15 of Colossians 3, Paul says, let the peace of heaven rule, no, let the peace of Christ. You notice that in the New Testament, he never talks about the peace of heaven. He talks about the peace of God or the peace of Christ because your peace is in a person. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Exiles on earth, I say it again. Our peace is the promise of the person of Jesus 
who will call us then to the place prepared. Only a heavenly kingdom mindset can bring that kind of peace that he offers you and me even this morning. And we'll continue to talk about that on Wednesday. But Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And Jesus, right after John the Baptist came on the scene and first thing he said out of his mouth, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what we'll talk about midweek. Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, I come asking that you will clear the air in our hearts. I come asking, Lord, that you will now begin to work among us or continue working among us. Because, Lord, if the stats are right, there are people here this morning who this is the first time they've even heard heaven described. Father, there are some here this morning who don't want to think about the afterlife because where they stand right now, they don't know if they're saved or not. And Father, much as that breaks my heart, I know it breaks yours. And, and I want to, with your eyes closed, just listen. If you are that person, if this morning you are the one standing here saying, I'm not sure if I'm saved, if I'm going to heaven, or if I'm lost and going to hell, I don't know with certainty. Then I want to tell you, you can know right now by accepting Jesus as Lord and confessing that you believe in his resurrection. And so I'm gonna pray this prayer and I invite you to pray with me. If you have never prayed this prayer before, even if you haven't, you just wanna repeat it because it's so good. If you want to know for certain today and for the rest of your life that you are saved, just pray these words in your heart after me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't keep enough things together to be good enough for you. And so I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to wash me in your blood. And I ask you to come take charge of my life. Come and be my Lord. For I believe, I believe that you rose from the dead, that you conquered death, and I wanna be with you. So come wash me, forgive me, I bow before you as Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.